finished the Sermon on the Mount last time we were together, and it had been like um, three years that we've been in Matthew, and we've only made it to Matthew 7. So we're going to take a break for a little bit, and just to prove that we can, we're going to do one whole book tonight in one sermon so that we can do it. Um, Raise your hand if you ever heard a sermon from Obadiah. Okay, that's what I thought. Well, we believe all Scripture is God-breathed, and that includes the Old Testament minor prophets. So you are going to hear a sermon tonight from Obadiah. Can you please turn in your Bibles to Obadiah, if you can find it? Of course, it's in the minor prophets section, so after the major prophets. As you are turning to... Obadiah, I will remind you, uh, they're not called the minor prophets because they are of minor importance. It's just because of what they wrote was shorter. So this is the word of God. And in all seriousness, we want to, as we read it, it's just 21 verses. It's only one chapter. Um, We are going to uh, give attention to God's word as it is due his name. Um, Just as some context, because, you know, you may not even know what the book of Obadiah is about. So this is at the time, uh, 586 B.C., we think. Some scholars put it earlier. It's a time of distress in Israel's history. Uh, Most scholars would say that it is uh, when the Babylonians have come in and they've conquered Jerusalem and the people are fleeing. And Edom is a kingdom surrounding uh, next to bordering Jerusalem. And so you're going to see the kind of attitude that they have towards the Israelites uh, as we read through this. So we'll start in verse one. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the cleft of the rocks in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If, thing, if thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how have you been destroyed? Would they not seal only therefore enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Timon, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. 
Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gates of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads and cut off his fugitives and do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations as you have done it, so it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they never had been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be a holy, it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negeb saw, uh, shall possess Mount Esau, and those of Shephthah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and, they, and the land of Samaria." And Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of people, Israel, shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Jerapheth, and the exiles of Jerusalem, who are in Shepherd, shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall mount up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Let's open in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, how we know that Christ told us man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So we ask that you would feed us this evening with this prophecy, with the oracles that you have given to your people. We thank you that you do provide such things for your people. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. If I were to ask you what was the number one grossing movie in 1989, could you bring it to mind? 1989. It was, uh, I've forgotten <laughs> the actual title. It was Indiana Jones, but I couldn't remember if it was The Last Crusade. Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade. That was the number one. It, it won an Academy Award, uh, and it did very well. I bring that up because it's full of many scenes that uh, are iconic. Probably the most iconic scene in it was when Indiana Jones is going through the uh, the cleft in the valley, and then it opens up and you see this this temple or this building carved into the rock. Uh, you may know that that's a real place. It's in Jordan. It is called Petra. And that actually is where the, the kingdom of Edom was. And when it talked about them in their clefts of the rock, this was their kingdom. This is what they had. That was actually the treasury building. Just as an aside, uh, Pastor Wakeland mentioned uh, in his sermon that um, we have no respect for the, the word of God anymore. My favorite scene in that movie is when uh, Sean Connery slaps Indiana Jones because he used the Lord's name in vain. He said, that's for blasphemy. And that's the sort of attitude they used to have. Even 1989, people still had that attitude. And yet we've lost it so completely. Uh, our outline for the book of Obadiah tonight, the judgment of the kingdom of Edom. That's what the main part of this uh, book is about. And then glory to God's kingdom. 
So we'll start out. This is about judgment to the kingdom of Edom. The, the, it starts out by saying the vision of Obadiah, and this is what the Lord says. Thus says the Lord. We know that God's word is inerrant. This comes from God himself. He's the one who told these oracles, who gave these visions. It is God's inerrant word. Westminster Confession of Faith 1, uh, section 1, says, It pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself. But those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people have now been ceased. So we do not have these same type of prophets that we had in the Old Testament. Uh, the canon is closed, and yet here we are listening to the very words of God. What is this message of judgment to Edom? We see in verse 2, it says, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. In verse 9, it says, mighty, your mighty men shall be dismayed. Verse 10, shame shall cover you. You shall be cut off forever. Verse 18, there shall be no survivor. This is an extreme version. You know, there is another uh, prophet, a minor prophet, who preached uh, uh, prophecy towards an unbelieving nation. Can you think of it? It was Jonah to Nineveh, and it went, he went to preach repentance, reluctantly, but nonetheless he went to preach repentance, and Nineveh did repent. In this case, the message is not one of repentance. It is one of judgment. This will happen to you, Edom. You have incurred this. Now, what are some reasons why? Verses 3 and 4 tells us, the pride of your heart has deceived you. These were a proud people. You see, it said, who will bring me down to the ground? They were in the rocks and they didn't think that they were uh, vulnerable. Matthew Poole, the 17th century commentator, says Edom boasted of his strength from the heights of the rocks in which he dwelt. But here he is answered. If he could build his nest as high as the eagles, which build and fly even higher than any other bird, neither the height nor the nest could save them. Nothing can stand what God will cast down. We must not be arrogant and prideful like they are. We don't, none of us, as far as I know, live in rock palaces. However, we have things that we build ourselves up with. Uh, Revelation 3, 17 said to the church of Laodicea, for I say to you, uh, for you say, I am rich, I, am, I have prospered, I have need of nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So wealth can cause you to live in a prideful manner. We must not let ourselves fall into that. Or perhaps, as I can tell by looking at you, y'all, is good looks that keeps you in pridefulness. Perhaps you uh, do not realize, as Proverbs 31.30 says, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. We should not put our hopes in our looks and our appearances, for it is fleeting. Or you could have overconfidence in knowledge. 1 Corinthians 3.18 and 19 says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. This is a big one in our age, especially in the academy. How many professors who are wise in the things that they've learned, they've learned a lot of facts, and yet they are fools in the economy of God. They know not the things of God. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that's how these people who have such big brains can believe things that are utterly foolish and make no sense. 
we see that God's word is true. We see this echoed here in Obadiah 1.8. It says, will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men of Edom? If God is your enemy, wisdom, all the wisdom in the world cannot save you. No, God opposes the proud. It says that in James 4, 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So, dear one, if you are sitting here this evening, I'm going to ask you, does God oppose you at this very moment? And you can tell me by saying if you are proud or not. Do you have a proud heart at this moment? Do you recognize that you need God, that even the best attempts of best works you've ever done have been because of his grace? Or are you proud? Do you think you in some way merit God's goodness? He should show you favor, unlike the Edomites, because you're in some way better. No, you ought to be humble before your God. All right, in verse 11, here's some more reasons why God is going to give judgment to Edom. On that day, you stood aloof on the day that strangers carried off their wealth and foreigners entered the gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. You were like one of them. So, and also you saw later in the chapter, as the Israelites were fleeing, they would stop their way. And so that they could be captured and taken away by the Babylonians. And God's blazed the blame at them. They weren't just bystanders. They were, you were like one of them. First Samuel 3.13 tells us a situation like this. Uh, and I declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Sometimes when you are just an observer, you might say, well, it's not my problem. It's somebody else's. That's happening to them. Those Israelites, it's not, not for me to intervene. I have no responsibility. And yet, if you know the right thing to do, you ought to. James 4.17 says that. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. Leviticus 5.1 says, if anyone sins and that he in that he hears a public adjuration to testify, and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter and yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. What does that mean? It was somebody who witnessed something and they were having a trial and they said, we need witnesses to come forward. And this person said, no, I'm not going to testify. And so that person was punished unjustly. And it says, you will bear iniquity. So just because you're on the sideline and you're not the one actually doing something, that does not mean you're in the free and clear. If you have a response ability to act uh, certainly you must now it's even worse than that it's not just as if they were on the sideline doing nothing uh, psalm 137 7 and 9 actually records for us what their emotions were what their state of mind was it says remember O lord against the edomites on the day of jerusalem how they said lay it bare lay it bare down to its foundations O daughters of babylon doomed and be destroyed blessed shall be he who repays you with what you have done to us blessed shall be he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks so they were joying in the destruction of God's city. They were urging it on, cheering it on, and they were even saying, take their little ones and kill them. As wicked as that sounds, we have had a taste of that in even our modern news, how wicked the heart of man can be that it would even destroy infants 
Indeed, even those in the womb. Previously, Edom refused. Uh, th- so this was not the beginning of their hatred right there at the end. There, uh, we have to go back in time to see when this started. Previously, when Moses was traveling through Canaan to try and get where they were going in Numbers 20, 14 through 21, Moses went to the kingdom of Edom and said, just let us cross through here. We've just come from Israel. We have nothing. We're just trying to get through. We're not even going to drink your water. We won't eat anything from the land. Just let us cross through. And the kingdom of Edom said, no, we refuse. You will not cross through. You can find that in Numbers 20. During the reigns of King Saul and King David, they both had to fight against the Edomites in 1 Samuel 14 and 2 Samuel 8. Edom invaded Judah during the reign of King Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles 20. And the last Edomite that we hear about in the Bible, of course, you can tell uh, God said that they would no longer exist. So we don't know Edomites today, but the last one that's recorded in the Bible for us, King Herod who murdered the little children in Bethlehem. He was from the kingdom of Edomia, which was the kingdom of Edom. So this is a wicked people, and God is going to give judgment against them. Now, you saw several times in this that it mentioned Esau. Why in the world is it mentioning Esau over and over? In verse 6, it says Esau. In verse 10, it says, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob. Verse 18, the house of Esau. So what does this have to do with Edom? Well, uh, let's turn to Genesis 25 and read verses 24 through 34. When her days gave uh, to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first twin came out all red and his body was hairy like a hairy cloak. And they called his name Esau. Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when, uh, when she bore him, them to him. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter and a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me have some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell to me your birthright. Esau said, I'm about to die of what used to me as a birthright. Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore it to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau the bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank, and he went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So as you can tell here, this is where Edom, the name is given to Esau. These two brothers split, and they made different kingdoms. And out of this came hatred for millennia. Now, you might think, okay, Esau, what in the world? You were willing to sell your birthright for some soup, for some stew? Give me a break. That is not realistic. 
And yet, dear one, if I tell you to replay in your mind the last time you sinned against the Lord when you were tempted, when you were in the throes of whatever the temptation was, to say that bit of gossip against somebody, to look at the things you ought not to look at, to, to hold on to things you didn't want to give away, and you, and you thought about it, and you thought, I'm not going to, that is the fight with the flesh. Galatians 5.17 tells us of that. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you do. This is the very war in our own hearts. We are all familiar with this. And yielding to the flesh happens. This is not something that, while it was absolutely wrong that Esau should have done it, is not something that we cannot sympathize with. We have all been in that situation and done poorly. Philippians 3:18 and 19 say for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ their end is destruction their god is their belly and they glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things their god is their belly their flesh their passions is there a better description of what the the god of our age is people just living in sensuality doing whatever's right in their own eyes going after the passions of the flesh this is aptly appropriate for our time now at this point we might be tempted to be self-righteous and think well if these edomites deserved what they got they were bad to the israelites they ought to have shown compassion esau was a fool he sold his birthright and then he starts this feud like the hatfields and mccoys that it just consumes his entire kingdom for the rest of their existence they deserve what they had coming to them and yet dear one let's go back just a little bit further even before he made that terrible decision. Let's turn. Where's, where's the other place that you are familiar with Esau's name being quoted in Scripture? Romans 9. When Rebekah, this is 9, verse 10 through 24, if you want to turn there. When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on the human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whoever he wills. You will then say to me, why does he then find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has not the potter no right over the clay 
to make of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for his vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. So there is no room for any of us. To look at Esau and that kingdom and say they deserved it, whereas I live such a good life, I don't deserve it. What was the difference between the two? Notice they were from the same mother and father, even in the womb, before they had done anything. God's electing love. Now, some, if your mind initially recoils from this and says, how can he do this? Well, you saw that in the text. That means you're interpreting it right because you saw that same question pops up. How can he do this? How is that not unjust? How is that possible? And yet, what was the response in verse 15? I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Think of the word mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is not giving the punishment that you deserve. It's clemency. And so this mass of humanity is looked at as sinful, which it is. Through the fall, it spread to all people. And God has mercy on whom he has mercy. To whom does God owe mercy? No one. If in your heart you say, well, he owes it to everyone, that's not mercy. You get the judgment. That is justice. That is right. Mercy is clemency that he has decided to give. He owes it to no one. It shouldn't be amazing to you that he says, I despise this sin. I despise this. That shouldn't be amazing. What should be amazing is that he says, I have mercy on this one. That's the amazing thing. And so you, dear one, if you are a believer in Christ, it is not because you were wiser or smarter or more loving. It is because God had mercy on you. He opened your heart. He gave you faith to believe in Christ Jesus, the Lord. Oh, this doctrine humbles us. It destroys that pride that the Edomites had. We are humbled before our God. There but for the grace of God go I, as the word in the words of John Bradford, the martyr in England. Oh, we are humble before our God. Now, before I move on from that, whenever we mention this, people think uh, at some point, well, then does that just mean we're robots? If God's preordaining everything, you know that the scriptures speak of Pharaoh hardening Pharaoh's heart. He mentioned Pharaoh in Romans 9. It, it talks about Pharaoh hardening his own heart three times. We're told that in Exodus 8.15, 8.32, and 9.34. And yet we're also told in the same book that Yahweh, God, hardened Pharaoh's heart in Exodus 9.12 and 10.1 and 10.20 and 10.27 and 11.10 and 14.8. So which was it? Did God harden Pharaoh's heart or did Pharaoh harden Pharaoh's heart? And this is the doctrine of divine concurrence. God ordains these things, and yet man's will has not had violence done to it. Our book of confessions even tells us that in Westminster Confession of Faith 3.1. God did from all eternity, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass, 
Yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty of the contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. No, when we are punished, it is for our choices, our decisions that we make, the sin that we choose, that we relish, that we, we are slaves to our bellies and our flesh. We are punished for our sins. And yet God is the wise one who ordains all. If you are still left scratching your head, then you are a mere mortal like the rest of us. And what is the final conclusion Paul gave? Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? If you thought you could understand the mind of God as a mere mortal, then you thought wrongly. You submit yourself to that king who is the real God, the God who has revealed himself in Scripture. All right, as we move to the conclusion, most of this book was about judgment, and so most of this sermon was about judgment. But you heard at the end there is the shred of joy and hope. And what is this? It's the glory on Mount, on God's, for God's kingdom. Verse 17, but in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. Charles Spurgeon says this. This is remarkable passage begins with a but because the precious verses have been uh, been denouncing judgments upon Edom. When God comes forth to punish his enemies, he also comes forth to bless his friends. When Pharaoh was overthrown in the Red Sea, it is so that Israel may pass onward to Canaan. When Amalek is destroyed, it is so that Israel may be at peace. There is a black cloud as well as the silvery rain. The acceptable year of the Lord is the day of vengeance of our God. This combination so constantly occurs that the psalmist said, I will sing of mercy and judgment in Psalm 101 verse 1. The sword of vengeance is displayed at the same time as the scepter of grace. Which one, dear one, do you have displayed or, or your eyes on this evening? The sword of justice or the scepter of grace? Have you repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? And if you have, do you extol his name from the depths of your heart for his gracious love towards you? Verse 19 says, uh, talks about the lands that will be possessed. John Wesley says this is larger than any of the previous promises. It's expanded. And so that he concludes that this is no doubt speaking of the church of Christ and the times of the gospel, that it is going on and possessing further and further. Verse 21 says, Saviors shall go up on Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdoms shall be the Lord's. John Calvin says this, God had still many redeemers whenever there might be a time to gather his people, but now. So these these redeemers in this text were other people, you know, Israel's still around and he's still going to bring them back from Babylon. He's going to send prophets. He's going to bring people to bring his people to gather them. But he says now in our time, we have Christ Jesus, the ultimate savior, the real redeemer of his people. And we look to him. One last note as we close. It's easy for us who have these scriptures. You know, Israel was, was running from uh, destruction and their enemies were laughing at them. And it's easy for us to be like, yeah, but it's a happy ending. We know that they came back from Babylon and we know that Christ came. But I want you to just imagine for one moment you are 
in that group of Judeans. You are fleeing. You're the people of God, or so you thought. These prophets had told you this, and yet your kingdom, Jerusalem, is in smoke, and you're running. And these people who were part of your kinfolk in the mountains, they are gloating over your destruction. And they're stopping you from escaping and turning you around to go back to destruction to the Babylonians. I want you to feel what that would have been like for the people of God. Perhaps that is a sentiment that you feel at at your life sometimes, where you're at the end of your rope. You have not been able to overcome whatever the situation is. Perhaps it was a divorce, or perhaps it's something going on at work, or perhaps it's something in your family. Who knows? Maybe you've gotten to that point where you're like, I don't see God's hand. And yet we must have that faith that God's promises will be accomplished. They did not they were not able to see the conclusion that we can see now. And yet where we are, we can't see the conclusion further from where we are, but we can know that this prophecy was concluded, was God's word was found to be rock solid. And so we should put that same faith in his God is the righteous one. Have you fled to Mount Zion? Have you fled to Christ? Have you fled And found your recompense, your love, your relationship with him there. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, how we pray that you will keep us from proud hearts. We want to be humble before you. We want to lay flat before the cross, knowing that you are the righteous one. Oh, we pray that you would cause us to be people of mercy and love and that we would shed the the gospel abroad, that we would tell as many people as we can that you would gather your elect from all nations, that none would be under this same judgment that Edom was given. Oh, Heavenly Father. Keep our hearts glad and joyous in the mercy that you have shown to us, not because of anything in us, but because of your mercy, your love, your graciousness. Oh, we love you and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please.